Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Lauren. Welcome back to the BioEats World Journal Club, where we discuss breakthrough scientific research, the new opportunities it presents, and how to take it from paper to practice. Okay, Lauren, so what's the topic for today's episode? Today we are going on quite a journey. Both the conversation and the article that we discuss start by investigating these ultra-thin coatings on insect eyes that give the eyes certain properties, such as being anti-reflective or anti-adhesive. But then that evolves into a discussion of biological patterns, Alan Turing, and how patterns can arise in a homogenous environment. Wow, so from insect eyes to Alan Turing, that is quite an arc. But why do we care about insect eye coatings and these kinds of biological patterns? Well, first off, they are cool. But more importantly, these eye coatings are formed by patterned nanoscale structures that the authors discover through reverse engineering are formed by self-assembly. They then use forward engineering to recreate these structures in the lab. And this provides an entirely new way to think about manufacturing nanostructures, which today is a super high-tech process and has this huge range of industrial applications. Joining me on this journey is Judy Savitskaya. She's on the BioDeal team here at A16Z and has a PhD in bioengineering from Cal. And we cover the reverse and forward engineering of these nanostructures, the beauty of Turing patterns, and how one could build a startup around this nanostructure technology. What I really loved about this paper is it, in one foul swoop, combines basic biology, synthetic biology, and computational biology all together. So they use a computational model to predict what is the mathematical form that a certain biological phenomenon is taking. So in this case, it is patterns on Drosophila eyes. They use that to figure out how is that actually happening in the basic biology? What are the actual molecular agents that are creating these patterns? And then they figure out how can we engineer patterns that are similar to this and like slightly modified from this using the components that are recapitulated uh, from a synthetic biological system. Yeah. At first I was reading this and I was like, oh yeah, why are insect eyes, you know, matte instead of shiny? And that's because of this really complex nanostructure that they are able to to define and then recreate and then kind of build off of and to create synthetic structures. So it's a really great example of going from basic science to applied science. Yeah. And actually on the basic science side, we should throw in some evolutionary biology as well here because they have this really cool finding that different species of Drosophila have different types of patterns on their eyes and that is related to different functions. So previous research has shown that insects have this coating on their eye that's formed of lipids and proteins, and that imbues their eyes with certain properties. So one of the key ones that they're talking about here is making the eyes not reflective, anti-reflective. And it does that by forming a gradient of different refractive indexes between the air and the lens material. And these coatings are formed by nanostructures. And nanostructures are, you know, obviously nanoscale. So nanoscale is like the diameter of a DNA helix. They're so minuscule. And nanostructures have like this huge range of properties. And there's the biological properties that, you know, exist in nature. But then there's also this huge range of synthetic nanostructures that, it, that people have created and that have this wide range of industrial purposes. So how are these nanostructures formed? So in this case in particular, the nanostructures are formed in a self-assembled manner. Turing patterns is 
a basic mathematical description of a way that patterns are formed in nature. And what's happening is that you have molecules that activate or inhibit each other, creating these sort of feedback loops. You get localized structures and you can play with how, how these structures are created. So if you think of this as like kind of like a lava lamp, you have like blobs that are like growing and merging and, and splitting the degree to which you get the split. So maybe you get lots of like little blob bubbles is controlled by how much activator versus inhibitor you have and how fast they're moving. And alternatively, you could modulate those same parameters to get really big blobs and lots of like merging between these blobs. So this is something that happens throughout nature. And it's, it's fascinating because when we think about making nanostructured materials, this is like a fairly high tech process. It requires a lot of precision engineering and it's, it's expensive because of that. Nature just does it kind of for free because of the underlying mechanics of the molecules that are involved. Right. Yeah. It, it does it for free and it does it with just two molecules. So one is an activator and one is an inhibitor of each other. And, you know, you mentioned that these are called Turing patterns and yes, it is derived from Alan Turing. He came up with this really elegant theory that describes how all these different biological patterns can arise from just two molecules. And, you know, the classic examples are cheetah spots, fish stripes, and the moth eye coating was actually the first example of a nanoscale Turing pattern. So whether you get spots or stripes has to do with the different diffusion rates of the activator and the inhibitor, and then also the size and shape of the system. Yeah. And actually maybe to zoom out and just say like, why do we even care about patterns? Like why was Turing spending his time thinking about this instead of computing or like the war or whatever else was probably on his mind at that time. And, and the reason is that fundamentally every organism starts from a single cell. And it's kind of crazy to think that from that single cell, you get structure later on. And there has to be a symmetry breaking event. And so this was Turing's proposal for how a pattern could arise from random effects. So in this case, the activator and the inhibitor are you know, maybe even starting from the same point, maybe where they start, it's all symmetrical, but just very small fluctuations that randomly occur in the amount of these particular molecules will lead to a positive feedback that will create the hotspots full of activator. And then surrounding that, is a ton of inhibitor that creates this like valley of activity around the activator blobs. Yeah, the blob, the individual blobs of activator can then fuse with other individual blobs of activator, can fuse with other ones, and then that forms the ridge, and then that becomes the maze. Mm-hmm. And so it's that balance between the activators kind of grouping together, surrounded by the inhibitors, and then the activators kind of reaching out and 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 being able to combined with other pools of activators. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how the patterns arise. Once you have the pattern established by those activators inhibitors, now that can be the origin for downstream patterning. And so there's been a longstanding holy grail of recreating Turing patterns in synthetic biology. And the, the key problem that you face is that the diffusion rates of these molecules need to be very different. So the activator and the inhibitor need to be like quite different in how quickly they move or else everything is moving together and you're just getting one solid reaction rather than an actual pattern that you would expect from from a Turing pattern. So the authors hypothesized that the different properties of insect eye coatings were encoded by Turing patterns. 
And what they wanted to do here is validate that hypothesis that these functional properties are imbued by the different patterns. Uh, They wanted to find what factors are creating these patterns. And then they wanted to see if they could recreate these patterns, you know, ex vivo, not in a natural system. So now that we have that background, the first thing that they did in the paper was they develop a model of the Turing mechanism that matches what they had observed in the eye coatings. Then they look at the different species of Drosophila flies, and they're comparing the different structures of their eye coatings with the various properties of their eye. The different structures that they described fall into two main types. So Judy, you came up with a really great description for what these type one Turing patterns look like. Tell me about it. This is going to reveal some of my culinary sophistication to the listeners, but as soon as I looked at the images, I thought they looked like those candy dots that you get on a piece of paper where the dots are just sort of like poking out of the paper. Mm -hmm. It's like a very dense paper full of candy dots. And then if you look at the type two uh, nanostructures, then you see it's almost as if those dots have started like melting, like you left them out in the sun too long and they're starting to merge into these like sort of like blobs of candy dots. So mm-hmm. we're going to call them dots and melty dots. Melting dots. Yeah. They're almost like spheroid and separated when they're in the dot form. And then the different Turing pattern, the type two Turing pattern, those spheroids merge together. They're the dots melting together to form this ridge-like structure. And if you kept going, uh, and this doesn't appear to happen on the insect eye nanostructures, but another form of the Turing pattern is where those dots almost completely merge together and actually become a maze. Mm-hmm. And that's like the fish stripes or rain coral is another example of a Turing pattern. So we have these dots, we have these ridges or melted dots. And what they do is they compare the properties based on their studies, anti-reflective and anti-adhesive seem to be two properties at the ends of the spectrum. So the the dots have the anti-reflective properties, and it seems that the the melted dots have this anti-adhesive property. So one thing that, that they did with this analysis of the different species is to try and understand what were the Turing activator and what were the Turing inhibitor? Because this is going to be critical for um, creating synthetic nanostructures. Judy, do you want to explain how they did that or what they found? Yeah. So they had an initial clue that there was a protein involved in these nanostructures. So they looked at expression levels of different proteins in each of these different species, and they found that there is more of a particular protein called retinin in the species that had more melty dot structures and less in the ones that had dot-like structures. So this is a hint that the retinin has something to do with the degree to which you get these structures. And they didn't find something similar for, for any other protein. So to double check that hypothesis, they then did knockdowns and overexpressions and found that they could actually move the structures toward more melty or less melty based on how much retinin was added or removed. So they've identified retinin as the activator. The next step is to identify the inhibitor. And they knew already that lipids and waxes were a key component of 
the corneal surface. And as you mentioned earlier, it's very important in a Turing pattern to have the activator and the inhibitor have different diffusion rates. So it would make sense that perhaps this would be a lipid or a wax because that would have a very different diffusion than a protein in the same system. So how did they identify the Turing inhibitor? Yeah, so this part was interesting to me. The hypothesis was that it is a wax, and then the biosynthetic pathways for waxes and fly eyes are unknown. But we know of several biosynthetic pathways for waxes in mammalian cells. And so they had a couple of hypotheses of particular uh, enzymes that will do pieces of the wax biosynthetic pathway. So it seems to me they got super lucky that they picked out the right ones. Maybe the one qualm I have with this paper is that they didn't actually prove that these genes are involved in wax biosynthesis. I think there's enough evidence here that we can probably believe that that's the case, but they sort of had the homology plus the outcome of when you delete these genes, you mess up these patterns, Mm -hmm. but, uh, but they didn't actually show that the wax is being made from these genes. That's a really good point because they don't name this new gene that they identified. And I kept thinking like, why didn't they name this gene? Especially Drosophila naming is so fun, (laughs) but maybe they didn't get to name it. Right. So then they do this fun trick of overexpressing the retinin gene, underexpressing the wax biosynthetic pathway and vice versa, and just sort of turn both of those dials at the same time and in different directions. And they get more of these dot-like structures when you have more of the inhibitor and then you get them sort of increasingly meltier as you add more and more of the activator. The other thing that they showed that really makes us think that this pattern is true, you have to show that the activator and the inhibitor have some interaction. So what they showed is that this protein retinin in the presence of wax actually folds. And they showed this with a number of different waxes that like you might even have in your kitchen. So they didn't necessarily show it with the, with the Drosophila wax, but we can believe that the biophysics is similar. Yeah. Right. For a true Turing model, the activator and the inhibitor have to physically interact and negatively influence each other. I guess when I had originally learned about Turing patterns, I had assumed that they were both proteins and that one turned on gene expression, one turned off gene expression. But in this case, it's one protein that is intrinsically disordered on its own. And then when it binds the uh, wax, it becomes ordered and and it forms this um, predominantly beta strand structure. So that's the inhibition. The inhibition is the folding. And that's how those patterns spontaneously arise. So now that they have identified the activator and the inhibitor, they understand how they interact. Now we get to the synthetic biology forward engineering part of the paper where they're creating these bio-inspired nanocodings. So they, they did what is actually such a simple experiment. They manufactured this retinin, they purified it, and then they mixed it with waxes um, and just put it onto a glass slide and it self-assembled into these nanostructures, which is awesome. This is why biological patterning is so cool. They didn't have to pipette in a particular fashion. They didn't have to get out the microscope. They just sort of put this material onto a slide and it by itself assembled. I agree that the creation of these patterns in the absence of cells is mind-boggling to me, but that's how you know Turing came up with it. 
So what's really cool about this for engineering purposes is this offers an entirely different way of creating materials, which is self-assembly. You just, you know that the things you're going to mix are going to make a certain pattern and then you take advantage of that. So to get that to be like precise to the nanometer where, where you get to choose where the activation spots are and where they aren't, that's a harder problem. But in a lot of cases, You just want the structure to have some average nanoscale properties that will give you the macro scale properties that you're looking for in the material. Yeah. And there's an incredible diversity of functions that nanoscale structures can provide. So one of the ones that I found really interesting is that nanostructures can actually be bacterial cytal. They're actually killing bacteria. So you could think about the usefulness of something like this in a hospital setting where you have, you know, that hospital bed rail is coated with this. Yeah. You know, a hospital bed is a large material to nanostructure. That would be really hard to do. And today it's really expensive. But if you could just slap together some protein and some wax and just coat the thing and it self-assembles, now that's a really different story. So what do you think the next steps for going from paper to practice for this kind of technology is? I think the main thing is to like know what you want, right? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, Lauren, like you just had a great idea about these hospital bed coatings. Like that could be a startup, right? Mm -hmm. You could imagine that, you know, you could have the hospital bed company or you could have a platform company that is a sort of antimicrobial materials company. And in terms of operationalizing what they have here, I think there's some work to do just in getting really specific about the types of waxes and the exact ratios that you want to add. And, you know, how do they hold up to things like pH? How do they hold up to heat? How does it hold up to to washing or like touch even? But if you can find all those parameters and it turns out that these structures are really resilient, you could actually just go forward with this right now. I think there's a huge opportunity here for people to come up with differentiated materials like this by playing with that protein structure. There could be a whole host of proteins that are based on this sequence that are kind of similar and form a different structure or different nanoscale structure because of the properties of the particular sequence that they have. And those sequences are patentable because Mm -hmm. they're not natural sequences. They're derived from natural sequences, but they're different. So you could imagine a startup working on basically categorizing all of these different materials that they could make from variations on this or similar themes and creating proprietary materials that they can then sell to companies that are making products that would would require these properties. Yeah, I think that's really interesting in just the sheer scope of things that can be created from two molecules. And, you know, just to echo back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, how this huge range of industrial applications all came from, you know, the very basic science of studying insect eye coatings. So there's a lot of examples we can point to where humans have created a totally synthetic product based on the principles that they see in nature. But there's fewer examples where humans have created a synthetic product based on the structures they see in nature using the materials and the, and the basic building blocks that created those structures. And I think that's like the beauty and the power of synthetic biology is that we can take these building blocks we know of. We know that they work. We know that we, they create structures. We know they make drosophila eyes that can vary in properties. We can actually take those exact molecules and use them or variations on that theme to create entirely new products that the world has never seen. 
Judy, thank you so much for joining me on Journal Club today. Always a pleasure to nerd out with you on science. Thanks, Lauren. Really enjoyed this one. And that's it for Journal Club this week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about how biology is technology, subscribe to our newsletter at a16z.com forward slash newsletters.